0: You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Question and answer panel, faculty, and closing remarks.
1: In Atlas Shracht, uh there is a passage where Ragnar tells Dagny that I, we don't think about the disaster uh, unless there is a real threat of it. And so that is the basis for the benevolent universe premise uh, within the objective uh, philosophy. So my question would be uh, how, okay, let me formulate it correctly. But if there is actually a threat of a disaster, or, for example, if we take uh, people who are born in North Korea, for whom life, I mean, the fact of being born is, you know, the disaster is so probable, that you cannot disregard it. How, for, how in such context uh, does the benevolent universe premise uh, remain valid and how can you still uh, be taking uh, values as your starting point uh, in taking your decisions and as your framework uh, of thinking?
2: I think that doing what Greg did yesterday? (laughs) Um, I think that's a main theme in We the Living, uh, because there are certain kinds of countries where a benevolent universe premise is impossible to enact, to to, to live according to. And that's one of the uh, points of the novel, is Kira's ability to maintain that outlook, to not let um, it, it destroy her. Oh, sorry. Um, but but that, that would be the first lead to, to a question, uh, to, to an answer to that, I think, is, is look at We the Living and uh, how Kira conducts herself uh, in that novel. Um, I would also think that the basis of the benevolent universe premise isn't to ignore danger. I forget how you, you put it. It's that the universe is benevolent and that one can achieve one's values in it. Um, that's the basis and then that creates a certain attitude that one ought to have towards uh, The disasters the dangers the sorts of things that can happen in a life, but I'm sure you guys have something else to say
3: um, Just a couple of references. There's a a chapter on the med- benevolent universe premise and the heroic view of man uh, in the book a companion to Ayn Rand And there's a lot of discussion of this there, especially of of Kira and this case of of living in a really oppressive society, and that would apply to North Korea, Iran, and uh, a lot of other places. Not too many at the level of those two. Um, I want to say a bit about whatever circumstances one's in, whether it's uh, that horrible, but then you guys wouldn't have been able to be here, or just ordinary bad uh, circumstances of what it means to view the universe as benevolent, which is, you know, a kind of metaphor. Um, It's to grasp that reason is powerful, that you are, the world's the kind of place in which it's possible for you to succeed in. And it's a matter of what things you regard as important or significant, what weighting you give to What significance you give to the various facts that you observe? People succeed and people fail. Some people fail through no fault of their own. Tragedies happen to people. But is that the norm to be expected, the nature of the universe, how things inevitably are such that anybody who succeeds in life, anybody who's happy, anyone who's able to make something to themselves, is a kind of random exception to the rule, a fluke. That would be the kind of malevolent universe premise. The universe is such that the bad things that happen are to be expected and there's nothing you could really do about them. Versus the view that, no, those things are real, they exist, but they're not in the nature of existence. They're not what is to be expected. You can understand why those things happen, but for the most part, problems are dealable with. There's a, a line from, from, I think it's from David Deutsch, ultimately, who's a writer who I agree with some things in but disagree with a lot, but it's a good line. Problems are inevitable and problems are solvable. If you have the right conception of understanding of what the world is like and what people are like, you see why life's not meant to be and couldn't be smooth sailing, some kind of Garden of Eden. A life like that wouldn't be worth living. Anyway, it wouldn't be a life. Uh, what one does in life is encounters difficulties, obstacles, opportunities and has to do something to get the most of them, overcome them, move forward, get to what we want and it's possible to do that, particularly if you define what you want rationally and think about the means to it and we've kind of got this, we've kind of got reality if we understand them, recognize what it is and make the most of our abilities. That's and what leads to a benevolent universe premise, and it consists in recognizing the relative importance and unimportance of the facts about tragedy, and opportunity,
0: and ability that there are in the world. I took it that part of the question was, could you be placed in circumstances where you could not develop a benevolent universe premise in the first place? I think, yes, there can be cases like that. So, the for sure, thinking about We the Living is one of the central places to think about the benevolent universe premise and Ayn Rand's view of it and what enables Kira to maintain it till the end. It is relevant that she's educated, that she's seen, uh, seen at least glimpses of life outside Soviet Russia and so has Leo in that and that's part of what they can grasp in a first-handed way that what their surroundings is not all that's possible and that it's it, what's happening in Soviet Russia at the time has no metaphysical significance. It doesn't tell you about the nature of reality, but I can imagine someone in North Korea who um, from birth is living a horrific and completely controlled life, that they can't grasp that. They can't grasp things beyond their immediate circumstances that, of what is possible in life. Or to take a different kind of situation, if you read some of the um, child soldiers in Africa who are dra- and deliberately drafted from a very early age into this, um, uh, I mean, in, in effect, a, a, a gang, or uh, into uh, a militia in anarchy and forced to do all kinds of horrific things. And it's the only thing they knew um, that they can't grasp that, well, the universe is benevolent. It's, yeah, they don't have the data. They can be put, and when you read of some of these people who get out of it, some do develop a view that, yeah, what happened to me doesn't say anything about the nature of human beings and the nature of human existence. But you need some data to be able to draw that conclusion. I can imagine, I think there are circumstances where you think, yeah, the person just does not have this data.
3: I've talked to one or two people who've lived under dictatorships and emerged from them and had from young, and one of the things that comes across in their stories is what little glimpses they got when of that another way of living was possible, how much those meant to them, and how much it was a question in their mind, is this real, is this really possible? Is this some kind of propaganda that we get, or, or is there really another way of living? And the psychological reality, and I think that's testament to, to, to what Ankar is saying. And I, I think you guys can check that in your own experience by if you meet such people or are reading,
4: um, you know, accounts that have been published. Um, Rand had very specific views about what the good was and that, that, you should be held responsible if you sort of choose to not act on that good. And that, that you yourself, but also other people, you should hold them responsible for that and you can morally judge them by that. But um, there, are, there are also other kind of mistakes that you can make in your thinking that aren't necessarily moral mistakes. And in a previous Q&A, smoking and our views on homosexuality came up. How should we think about living a life where, where you're sort of trying to act on the good but, and, but also rec- recognizing the fact that hey, we, we might make mistakes and how can we be sort of, and, and how should we think about sort of being certain and forceful while recognizing that we might make mistakes?
3: My, my first thought is that we should think about it selfishly and purposefully. The, the point of judgments, moral, epistemic and otherwise, is to enable us to live. Enable us to have lives that are self-sustaining and fulfilling. That's why we judge other people, because having horrible people around us is gonna uh, harm us in that, and, and doing anything that promotes evil is going to hurt us, because evil hurts people. Um, And because more importantly promoting the good is going to pay dividends for us and being around good people is going to be good for us likewise mistakes are bad for us and getting things right is good for us and uh, Even if it's not moral, I mean, you know knowledge is good and error is bad bad for us not morally good or bad and It's inevitable that one will make mistakes in life. We're fallible and over the course of a life you know, it's impossible. I don't know anyone who's never made a mistake uh, and who's not going to make one going forward. So what it is to think about that that selfishly is to keep in mind the purpose of trying to get things right, not being fearful of error in a way that makes one risk averse and unable to function and um, and guarded, but also not being cavalier about the fact that there's a truth out there and what you say might be false. Uh, if, and you've got to take care to make sure you get it right because getting it right will help you and getting it wrong will harm you. And not making it a matter of guilt and reproach and duty. Did I make a mistake? Was it a moral error? Was it not a moral error? How can I repent and so forth? It, you might find out that you did something wrong and you should do something to make up for it. But the primary thing to be thinking about is how does this serve me? Well, I want to get things right because getting things right is good for me. And then what can I do to help me do that? I've been saving this question for uh,
5: today. So I think that one of the most important things that is happening in our times that might transform each and every one of our lives forever is artificial intelligence, especially what's been going on with GPT. I'm sure that many of the people in this room are aware of said things. So on March 22nd, this year, 2023, um, there was a letter a letter, an open letter that was signed, and I quote, this is the purpose of that letter. We call on all artificial intelligence labs to immediately pause for at least six months the training of all AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. This has been signed by people like Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX, Tesla, and Twitter, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, and many other people. Um, I would like, since i I can ask this question to the ARI intellectuals. What is ARI's stance, number one, on can artificial intelligence ever truly become human-like in terms of acquiring consciousness and things of that sort? And number two, what do you think should be the attitude taken towards AI, whether it should be regulated, non-regulated, what do you think
2: of this open letter? Just uh, briefly, since I don't know much about AI, and um, I can't speak for AI, but in general we tend to frown upon the moratorium on brains, because that's in a way what this is in one particular kind of area. And it's not the first time in history that something dangerous and scary has appeared and the immediate reaction of even smart people is to say, let's put a stop on this. six months could become a year and and what have you, but maybe you want to address some of the AI sort of issues. Well, maybe you should say if ARI has a position
3: since you're the most in a position to speak for it if it does.
0: Yeah, no, ARI does not have a position on what is possible scientifically in the development of neural networks and things like this. If If it becomes conscious, then you're dealing with something like an artificial organism. And ARI, and I think philosophy more broadly, doesn't have a position on can artificial life be created? I don't see why not, Um, but it's also, uh, it's not, that's, you need specialized knowledge of a kind that philosophy doesn't give you. So ARI does not have a position on that. I agree with Robert on the issue of a moratorium on brains. I find the whole thing ridiculous as though, people are going to stop actually doing research. They might stop talking about the research they're doing for six months or something, but the idea that people will stop, halt their research, I just find fantastic. The other issue, though, that I would say, which is true, and if... The, so this is part of... This is not governmental, or at least not yet. It, it, it's government is going to prohibit this or supposedly press a pause button or something like that. If this is voluntary, I don't think... Again, so I don't think... That the what to do is to put a pause on it. But it is true of any scientist, anyone engaged in technology, they should be thinking about the moral dimensions of what they're doing. And that's true of artificial intelligence, that's true of biotech, that's true of every domain. And Ayn Rand has a very interesting um, article on this issue of two young scientists. And it's the idea that scientific research is somehow divorced from or can be isolated from moral values is um, extremely wrong-headed. And in the end, it's part of the goal of saying that science is value-free that it so easily can be put in the hands of evil. So there is an issue for every company, every researcher in this, to be thinking about the moral dimensions of this. Can this be weaponized? Can it get in the hands of the Chinese and so on? There are kinds of moral issues, but you want the individuals thinking about this, not that it's, uh, certainly not that it's mandated by government. But if some companies get together and think there's some norms that we should be prescribing for research of the, what our companies are doing and so on, if it really comes from a positive moral perspective, there are reasons to do that but not in the way in that we're gonna put a pause on it, and I don't think that it makes any sense.
5: Do you think it could ever evolve to the point where it violates individual rights by its own volition?
3: Well, maybe I should. So, the kind of thing that LLMs are is not, in my opinion, I think, I can't say specifically, the kind of thing that could be conscious. It's a complicated, predictive device for generating uh, text that is like text that's been put into it, and um, I think it is is very possibly possible to create artificial life, to create artificial life that's intelligent. Um, and I, but this isn't the process of doing that. I also think it's possible for the LLMs or something like them, or something that evolves out of the same kind of research methods or something, to come to the point where they're able to simulate or emulate much wider ranges of human intellectual action than that they're able to do now, such that one could delegate much more complicated tasks to them, some tasks that you might have once thought required creativity. You could already do that with Dali and so forth. Um, so I think there's tremendous potential for this kind of technology. Um, that's a different thing from saying that it's alive or about to be alive or about to be conscious. Maybe some technology someday will lead us to creating that. This doesn't, I don't think, is the kind that could. But that doesn't mean that it couldn't acquire many of the features that people think an AGI would have. That is, being able to do vastly more than these kind of machines can do now, and they're now able to do a lot more than some people might think. Um, And the fact that they can do so much, like with any technology that can now accomplish a lot, does raise real questions about dangers that they could pose. Uh, I don't think it could, it's the kind of thing that has volition that could therefore of its own volition start destroying people. But it maybe is the kind of thing that could go haywire and start destroying people non-volitionally, but you know, by executing its code it can be instructed to do something and find means to do that thing that end up you know, being very deleterious. This is not unique to this technology, it's a common feature of technologies that involve a lot of power, but this has a real lot of power, uh, is a big jump in amount of power recently. And so I do think there are real concerns about what it's like to use it responsibly and to use it safely. I think people are right to be concerned about it, and some of the kinds of worries that went into that letter I think are reasonable worries. But what bothers me about the letter is it doesn't seem to me to actually be focused much on solutions. It's just focused on the idea that we will pause until we find them six months, but it's not—if it was a call to— and there's bits of this in it, but if it was a call to get together to think up standards to come up with a standards agency to not a governmental agency but something like IPEE or something you know a, a standard setting agency or a board to think about this um, that seems to me to be what's really called for, and uh a suggestion that people pause some research until some specific goal that people are actually pursuing is met, I think is you know somewhat plausible but there's this seems like a a fearful stop reaction rather than a thoughtful, here's how we make progress on solving the problem of the risk involved reaction? Mm
4: -hmm. Good afternoon. So, Ren speaks about human having a heroic potential. She speaks about human being a hero in some sense. Also, she speaks about selflessness as the deepest immorality, correct?
3: I would say irrationality is the deepest evil, but they are so closely related.
4: Okay. Now, in this world where there is, it is full of religion. In the world where people are connected with many strings with altruism, um, one can conclude that human beings are, if we are looking like world population immoral in that sense and highly altruistic. Now if we take those people and we place them in the environment where we would lift all the borders, we would have, let's say, free world, we would have everything is privately owned, and we would live in a society where government, as she put it, would be voluntarily financed. um, How would that look like if we if we do it today and if done in stages, what are the stages that one would need to follow? I'm curious about your thoughts about that. Thank you.
0: Um, I think it's a fantasy projection to that we're gonna have a free government all the way to uh, voluntary financing of the government And what would happen, what would happen, everyone would say, well, this is wrong, and we will set up something different. I mean, on a world scale, the idea that we get, we have a government that doesn't um, correspond to the way people think about the nature of government. I think that's just, it's not true. We get the government in the end that we think is right, not in every place and not immediately, but if you're looking over time. That's what we get. So the reason we have um, uh, governments that have much more power than say what was envisioned by the founding fathers and what was established at the founding of America is because that's what people think is right. They, They think this is how government should function. These are the powers government should have in a broad sense. They might squabble about particular things that I don't really like. The retirement age is being raised to 64 and so on. But the idea that government should have this kind of power um, to be able to set the terms of how you retire and when and who's going to pay for it and we're going to force some people to pay for other people's retirement. This is what people think is right. So you get the government in the end and over the long term that Corresponds to what people think should be the powers of government. So the change would have to happen. The first change would have to be that people think that the powers that government has now, it's immoral for them to be wielding all these kinds of powers. But that would mean that altruism goes way down, that way fewer people think of altruism as the essence of morality, and many more people have a view that know what morality is about, if you put it at the time of the enlightenment, the pursuit of happiness. And then we need a government that is going to help us um, uh, to, to strive and to achieve that goal. And then in that context, you can be thinking about how do we move from where we are to now where we want to be, but that there's a significant amount of people who that they wanna be somewhere different than where we are. And that's what the change would look like. And it's part of why it's, it's not it's not driven by politics. Politics is, it's, it's, um, it, it's not just a complete byproduct of other philosophical ideas, but you need other philosophical ideas, moral um, and epistemological and metaphysical, as you got in the Enlightenment for people then to rethink the whole purpose of government and say, we want something very different than what we currently have. And that's what the change would look like, I think.
3: Yeah, I'd like to add something about how people are now. So are they irrational and altruistic? Well compared to what? compared to people in 600 BC 750 AD 1100 in different countries different times Compared to what they could be compared to what they could be people are irrational and altruistic most many people too much of the time but compared to how the human population has been throughout history, we're only just learning how to think and uh, and and what morality is. Uh, people are now, I think on balance, more rational in the way they deal with the world than they were hundreds of years ago, um, more selfish than they were hundreds or thousands of years ago. Most people, I mean, most Christians today aren't real Christians. They're too Christian, but they don't totally live their life by faith. They don't really admire the Christian saints and martyrs and think, man, that would be the best way to live. They kind of say they do sometimes, but that's not what they're trying to do in their own lives. They don't flagellate their flesh, for example, or you know, spend their whole life feeling guilty for having sexual desire. Uh, they don't think you know, of humanity is scum, or they do only part-time. And likewise for the other kind of religions of the modern age, uh, environmentalist, religionists who, you know, there's a lot of bad and anti-human ideas out there, a lot of irrational ideas out there, but there have always been. And there's so much intelligence, ingenuity, rationality, selfishness, ambition in the world that we could have flown here from all different places and gotten into the same room and there's a microphone that works and the lights are on. I mean, all that stuff comes from rationality and intelligence. The fact that none of us are worried about where our next meal is going to come from. There are so many people thinking well and pursuing values that are sustaining all of our lives and more so than ever in the past and better at it than at most stages in the past. So it's true that there's a lot of immorality and a lot of altruism out there, but there's also well, you know, a lot of rationality out there, and at the grandest scales in history, it's growing. And I think it's important to realize that, to know that there can be the kind of change incrementally towards a better political system. We've seen some of that change. We've seen some of that change progressing in some areas in politics, even as other areas have slid backwards. And it's not a kind of fantasy or a utopia. Uh, And it's not a problem of how do we take these monsters that are our neighbors and somehow corral them into a situation Where we'll be safe around them, and they'll be decent our neighbors are on balance pretty good Uh, But all of us can be better and Hopefully we can help one another to be
4: Thank you Hi.
6: Um, The other day it was hinted that in the process of learning something new um, I either have to become such an expert that I can evaluate everything that I read, you know, for myself and know whether it's true, or I have to decide to trust some testimony from some expert. And you indicated that there was possibly a process for doing that properly. I'm curious to hear more about that.
3: I guess that's to me because I said so about that. Um, so first, because I don't want to talk too long on it, let me just... Recommend again a lecture. I gave that's all of, like the whole lecture is about this um, Called being an objective consumer of science or how to be an objective It's kind of objective consumer of science entitled and it's part of the lecture series thinking Objectively, which you could find on ARI's one of the ARI's websites. So there's a whole lecture on that, but the Two kind of crucial points there's two ways in which you can know a field. This is a point that comes from Aristotle. There's being an an expert in the field and having what he calls paideia, education in the field. Being somebody who is able, knows the kind of standards of arguments, knows what kinds of things would count as evidence in the field, knows what sort of things a proof would look like at least from a distance in the field. And it's a lot easier to acquire that with respect to a field than it is to require actual expertise, and and acquiring some of that goes a long way. You might not know for sure who's right, but you'll be able to rule out a lot of people who might present themselves as experts and know what ones are possible. Yes, it's three pieces of advice. Second piece of advice, it's not just that there are a million different fields in the world, a whole stack of them all kind of Organized in the library catalog next to one another. Fields are stacked hierarchically. There's natural science. Within the natural science, there are many different natural sciences. Um, within physics, there are sub branches of physics. Within medicine, there are subspecialties. And you can have generalized abilities to generalized padea, either for all of knowledge, which amounts to knowing logic somewhat, or for specific wide branches that have narrower sub branches. And having it in the wider branches helps you out in the sub branches. And then So you might not need to know a whole lot about immunology, but you know some general things about medicine that will give you a bead on what's going on in immunology, including that will help you figure out when you need to know more. And then thirdly, there's a division of labor here. You should be looking for experts, looking to work with experts. You can't develop expertise in everything, and you can't even develop paideia in everything. But part of what you can do is develop enough to tell or at least have very high probabilities about who has it, in what things and at what levels, so that your, your way of thinking isn't just someone's ignorant and their one opinion is good or another, or they're an expert, but rather this person is an expert in this particular sub-discipline of this and they have some generalized education with respect to the larger thing, and, and if you think about the people that you're getting testimony from that way, that really helps. And then on top of all of that, what you want to try to get is not just an opinion from the expert, but a kind of outline explanation of why he thinks it, that you can then apply this generalized reasoning to, and recognize that what you have when you have that isn't the same state of mind that an expert who knows it has, but it's not just taking it on authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you want to think, why? how do I know he's an expert? And you want to look for dissenting expert voices and see how they answer one another uh, on issues that are important to you. So I think those are the kind of essentials of it.
5: Okay, thank you.
0: Uh, homosexuality, having been discussed, I would be uh, eager to hear what is your as modern objectivist philosopher's perspective on transgender identity
2: um, I don't really have a view on what is it um gender dimorphism uh, i mean as, as a, a phenomenon um. I think you would need a certain kind of expertise. I have no doubt that there are people who, um, there's a certain psychological issue and they need to discover ways to to, um, uh, deal with it and one of them might be uh, uh, becoming trans. Um, But I do have an opinion on transgenderism as a political movement and I think it's one of the most toxic in the culture. And the way uh, you see it in the culture is, uh, it's really incredible. Um, so there are discussions, should trans women be allowed to, um, well, not really discussions, should they be allowed to um, take part in college uh, sports, for example? You can't even have a discussion about that. If you do, I mean, you're, you're kind of denounced as a transphobe. You have to be very careful if you're on a college campus what you say about the issue. Um, so, in, in, as a political movement, I mean, there's people being canceled all over. They're, they're I mean, physically attacked. What's happening to J. Cal, J.K. Rowling? It's, um, that I think is a really ugly part of the, um, of the culture, but uh, as on the particular issue of what any particular individual uh, What is right or wrong for that individual as a treatment? I don't have any expertise.
3: There's a phenomenon in the world where people whose physiology would lead you, and almost anyone else, to identify them as a man or a woman, understand themselves to, and feel deeply that they are something other than that. Either the opposite of those two genders or non-binary or some additional gender that they, that, you know, there are ones people have come up with, right? That's a real phenomenon. And I think the most important thing to know about that phenomenon, which seems to me to be widely evaded in the culture, is that it's not very well understood by anybody. Not very well understood by trans people, not very well understood by the doctors treating trans people, not very well understood by anyone. Some people understand that a lot better than others. It's also not very well understood by what happens to such people or such people over time if they take various courses of action? Is transitioning what's best for them? Will they be happiest? Will they be not? What, if, what types of transition, medical transition or just cultural? If medical hormones, uh, surgeries, what about puberty blockers? What about? You know, there are a lot of questions to figure out what's best for people, and the answers aren't well-known. There are more and less plausible theories. People, people are trying to figure this out. But I think the most important thing to... To, to notice about it, is it's a difficult spot to be in, right? It's, it's a problem for you if you look such a way and your body is such that everybody identifies you with one thing and you feel really deeply that you're something else, and that it's a problem that we don't know that well how to solve. We don't know how well that causes it, and we don't know what course of action is best for such people, and in that context, people who have that have to figure out how to live, have to figure out what's best for them. They need the freedom to do that. I think they deserve the respect and best wishes of the rest of us and what kind of support we can give them non-sacrificially in figuring out how to do that. And likewise for the doctors trying to figure out how to deal with it. And I think there are a lot of honest people, trans, trans doctors, et who are working on this problem and trying to figure it out and doing research on it and treating patients and so forth. But what we've seen, and this is I think what you might be calling the trans movement, or the transcendental movement, Is transness made into a kind of political totem? We have a kind of politics where There are people looking for Who should be the group on behalf of which other people have to sacrifice? Who are the groups who have it hard such that we could take their hardness and weaponize it to damn our society? and you get a situation where these the plight of such people and questions about what to do with them i do for them with them about them what they should be doing are made political issues issues that are footballs that political footballs issues that inflame people um, with supposedly some people fighting for them for their interest and supposedly other people trying to put them down or whatever, but but I don't think it's really about recognizing this is a hard problem, no one knows exactly how to solve it, people have to experiment and find the truth, and I don't think that the movement for trans rights has been proceeding in the way it would if it were trying to save the lives of such people and make them easier. I think the kind of issues that have been made, hot button issues, have been made hot button issues because they're the kind of issues that inflame tensions. I think the putting of it as an issue of trans rights, for example, where it's not always an issue of rights, and the whole rhetoric around rights and what's pro and anti-trans and anti-trans rights and that having any view of a trans person other than that person's view of them is denying their existence, um, so that unless you are exactly right and the person who's judging what's right is right, it's not okay to be confused about this or to wonder about it, right? that kind of view, the view that any kind of wrongness, and I think, for example, some of the things J.K. Rowling has said about trans people are mistaken, or at least not such that she's not in a position to know them. And some of the concerns she's raised are, I think, in advance of the evidence that there is to be concerned about them. But to take that as equivalent to being a bigot, to take her as the threat to trans people, or the threat to anybody, when I think what's really the threat to any kind of misunderstood and minority is the people who make them, who, who, who raise their issue in such a way that makes it necessarily politically divisive. If people were trying to figure out how to best help trans people, those trans people themselves, how to make the world safe for them, how to create the conditions in which the knowledge needed for them to prosper can be best discovered and implemented. I think it would be a very different movement than what we're seeing. I think there's something um, odd about the nature of the movement and odd about the nature of a lot of the reaction to it. So on both sides, that North Carolina rushed to ban transgender bathrooms and someplace else tried to mandate them. The, the kinds of things that are issues of contention. And then one other issue. There's a kind of weird sense of what everybody's entitled to that's lying behind a lot of these debates, like um, the question of trans women on women's swim teams, for example, um, or in in women's sports. There's a kind of assumption that everyone is owed uh, a league in which they can compete to their satisfaction so that women are owed the existence of sports institutions where they can do well, and therefore, if, if including trans women in them messes that up, then they should be taken out. No one's owed institutions like this. This is, by the way, a, 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 something that came out of civil rights law and how it dealt with women. Women's sports are only such a big thing because of, uh, I think, a premise that was wrongly um, you know, uh, put into law. The right approach, if if for anybody who wants to be on a team and the right way for society to organize itself to make team sports, you know, enjoyable for people and such that people can get out of them, is that different leagues, different groups organize different sorts of teams with different people in them who want to swim competitively against one another. And they make their own decisions and they experiment with uh, different models and who wants to join the teams and who wants to watch the competitions and who wants to pay for it. And it's, it's not a matter of people's rights. It's a matter of what makes an entertaining competition. I think a lot of questions are being posed in terms of rights and conflicting rights and conflicting claims, when that is not the right way to think about them. It's a way to think about them that breeds conflict, and it's coming from the idea that the way to do morality and the way to be activist uh, on behalf of justice is to find some group of people that's badly off, that's treated poorly, and then to demand that the rest of the culture sacrifice for them, instead of thinking about what are the actual causes of the problem here, what is needed to help these people, and to let these people achieve all that they can achieve in life. Thank you. Here,
6: hello. Uh, So, looks like, lots of problems uh, within economy, governments, but also culture, academia, and philosophy is uh, created and fueled by government's control of uh, money. Uh, We are living in a a kind of transitionary period where it looks like uh, the fiat system and problems with fiat system are coming to a climax. So next to AI, another topic which uh, I think we should uh, consider a bit more and put a bit more attention to is uh, Bitcoin. So, did you give it uh, uh, a bit of thought? Because I think that uh, Ayn Rand, if she would leave today, she would be a Bitcoiner. Francisco Danconia, he would uh, give a Bitcoin speech. And I know that, uh, like, Jaron Brook maybe gave some comments about Bitcoin, but I think he doesn't understand it. So, what are your thoughts on this? Well, this, like, just for the context, uh, in my conviction, Bitcoin is the most uh, breakthrough technology of our lifetimes, uh, and probably very liberating tool. Finally, the dream of Hayek, of the nationalization of money, is, uh, is uh, fulfilled. So uh, I don't think we should ignore it.
0: So let me start off by saying ARI does not have a position on Bitcoin. Um, and I don't think it's right that Ayn Rand would be... That, that, that it, you could just say, well, she's for... Private banking; therefore, she would be for Bitcoin. Um, it's there's a real danger in dictating to the market. This is what it. This is what the market should do, or trying to project that if people were free, these are the businesses they would start. This is what private money would look like. It's a, part of the reason that you want freedom is and you want freedom especially in the areas of, of life that are so crucial to human life. Um, something like healthcare, something like the whole financial system. The reason you want them to be free, private, where people can create, produce, and compete with one another so that there's an evaluation of, yeah, you've produced something that is of such great value that it will get in widespread adoption in the market, you can talk about those principles, but the idea that it's, um, it's too close to the planner's mentality to say, oh, Bitcoin would emerge or Facebook or we would have Twitter or we would have five Twitters if we had freedom. So th- what one should really advocate for is free banking and a free financial system. Not for Bitcoin, that it's, oh, Bitcoin is going to solve our, all our problems. And I know bankers and people in the financial system who are pro-Bitcoin. I know people who are anti-Bitcoin. And th- and the idea that it, it's, you're going to take a stand on that and actually think you know of what, given all the competition on the free market, this is what would win. I'm very skeptical of that. I'm very skeptical of that in any industry, that if we had... Hit free healthcare, these are the drugs that we would have, and this is what it would look like, the kinds of doctors, and no, that emerges on a market through a lot of people's thinking and competition in regard to that. And that's true in regard to money and banking as any other industry.
3: So I think part of the claim for Bitcoin, I agree entirely with making the distinction between what should the policy be, that we should have economic freedom, and that's very different from taking a position on What products would, you know, you support uh, when you were free to buy them or not? Uh, But it's a little bit muddied with Bitcoin, I think, because part of what Bitcoin advocates think is that the development of this product in the political situation we have now is going to help us evolve to a world where there's an alternative to fiat money. The idea is uh, Bitcoin will get adopted in different places. So many people will be trading Bitcoin and using it as money. Somehow this will lead to a situation where... It replaces fiat currency. There are certain views involving game theoretic accounts of what will happen if different countries do different things whereby people think this is, the future is going to come about. Uh, I think it's wishful thinking. I don't think it's gonna happen. And I don't really think it could happen with Bitcoin, although I suspect that blockchain has some really important uses in the future. But, you know, if you think it can, and, you, you know, it, try it. I mean, we'll see what, ha- see what happens. I don't, you know, more power to you, so to speak, but I don't think it's gonna be a, a, a successful policy. As for whether it's a good investment, you know, I own a little of it. Some periods it's done well, other periods not. Um, so I, that's all I have to say about it. Thank you. Okay.
7: So I've got a question about perfection and morality. Aaron states in an abstract that, and there's the whole long quote, discard that unlimited license to evil, which consists of claiming that man is perfect and so on and so on. And it ends on the statement, quote, moral perfection is unbridged rationality, unquote. And Dr. Biswanger quotes this passage of, from abstract in his article, The Possible Dream, and he also states, quote, in regard to moral values, the imperfect is not that which falls slightly short of the ideal but that which betrays it altogether by instituting an immoral premise. It would be grossly misleading, for instance, to describe a man who tells the truth most of the time, but lies occasionally as imperfectly honest. Such a man is simply dishonest. And my question is, in regard to all of this, um, does it follow from that, that most people are simply immoral, since most people are not fully dedicated to reason?
3: Thank you. Let me see if I can restate the question briefly, because it was a little hard to hear you, and then see if one of you wants to take it. So, Ayn Rand talks about moral perfection, uh, that you shouldn't, we shouldn't accept anything less from ourselves than moral perfection. Um, pride is about achieving moral perfection. Uh, Harry Binswanger in The Possible Dream wrote about perfection. Uh, should we conclude from all of this that uh, most people, who you might just call imperfect, are immoral? Does that capture the essence of it? Um, because... Well, let's. I want it to be. So it, yeah, there, it's,
7: uh-huh. I mean, I uh, mean, precisely about the thing uh, that's a man who is honest most of the time by rights so is. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, if
3: someone's imperfectly honest, they're just dishonest. If someone's imperfectly moral, therefore, they're immoral. Aren't most people immoral then?
0: Um, so, the part of what you're bringing up is that what a real dedication to morality means in objectivism is one way she puts it is an unbreached rationality. It's a full commitment to knowing um, and knowing in the deep sense of you wanna know what's true and you wanna know what's good and then you're gonna put both all your knowledge into action that that's what morality is about and it requires 100% dedication to that. So from that perspective, Do I think that there's a lot of people who have that kind of dedication to figuring out what is true and what is good? No, I don't. I don't see why the statistics on this kind of issue matter. Um, You should be looking at individuals and thinking about individuals to the extent that they embody this. And even if they fall short of it, it's relevant the dimensions in which they fall short, and in what areas do you think that they really are concerned with figuring out what's true and what is good, in what areas aren't they, and deal with them in so far and in those areas that you think they're on the path of truly trying to understand things and to create things. I mean, part of what it means to wanna to trade with people is to figure out what is good about them and trade with that aspect of them. And it is relevant to know, well, there's aspects where I think this person isn't living up to a uh, uh, full commitment to really trying to figure out what's true and what's good, and to put that into action. And you, and you deal with the person accordingly. So the, the fact that the, you might think of a person as, I don't think of them as 100% dedicated to this in the way that morality, if they fully were understood and took morality seriously, that would be what they were doing doesn't mean well well, now you can't deal with the person or you brand the person evil and you have to shun this person a lot of life is trying to figure out how to navigate cases of people who you don't think are 100% moral but you also don't think are monsters and you're trying to deal with and uh, promote and encourage what is good about the person while simultaneously not giving um any kind of encouragement or even sort of um kind of uh, being unwilling to criticize and to just identify the aspects where, look, I don't think you're fully living up to what morality actually demands in this area, and therefore, in this area, I don't want to deal with you. And that, like, that's part of what justice is, and it's part of what life is about.
2: Go ahead. Thank you.
6: <laughs> Can a person say, Uh,
3: that he's free in anarchism and why? He could say it, but he'd be wrong. (laughs) Anarchism is the condition where there's no... Where there's no objective control over the use of force. Where everybody uses retaliatory force on their own recognizance against everybody else. And that is a condition in which we're all beset by threats of force at every moment and that is precisely the condition of being unfree. Anarchism is the condition that you're in when you're in a place that's ruled by gang warfare. I don't mean metaphorical gang warfare. I mean you're on the streets of a place where law and order is broken down and there are criminal gangs. Anarchism is the condition that you're in when you're in a prison where the wardens are not paying attention and there are Gangs of prisoners protecting one another from one another anarchism is the condition of of countries like you know Somalia when it was anarchistic Um, This is not a condition where you're safe if you think that's What would freedom mean if that was freedom anarchism is a condition of, of pervasive force? Where might is not governed by right where there are no institutions or mechanisms to appeal to? with your claim of right to constrain the might and All claims to the contrary are, I think, built on really flimsy rationalistic constructs that are pretty easy to tear down and have been torn down. Um, I think a lot of students, you know, uh, and it's natural to be soon you're working through things, don't see through this, but I think the the theorists of this um, should know better. They, there's a lot of claims that there are a lot of anarchist and anarcho-capitalist arguments that haven't been debunked, but the claims are make-believe. They have been debunked. The essential petition was debunked, I think, conclusively and decisively decades ago, many times over, and there were just slight, you know, changing of a few words
0: that don't change anything. And anybody who's lived in anarchist conditions knows, and knows at a pretty early age, that you're not free. I've been in parts of Africa where there is not a monopoly on the use of force and the idea that you think oh yeah now I'm free to do what I want you look at every other person and you have no idea what their attitude towards force is when they will use it under what conditions you're constantly under feel under threat it's part of why um there's no long-range economic planning because you have no idea what everyone else around you thinks about the use of force and the idea that so I live in the US now and I've lived in parts of Africa that were at the time were under anarchy and the idea that oh I don't feel free in the United States because there's an income tax but I felt free in Africa it's like it's a total make-believe and if anyone and like a 10 year old I was 10 at the time can grasp this fact.
3: Thank you. Oh yeah okay uh, let me plug two things on this. Uh, one is Robert and I have a, a book we edited together called Foundations of a Free Society, which is a book on Ibram's political theory, and in it there are some some discussion of anarchism in several chapters. There's a chapter by an anarchist, uh, Michael Humer, who presents his view, and there's some responses by Harry Binsmanger. Uh There's also um, the Rutledge Guidebook or Handbook to Libertarianism, which came out a year or two ago, uh, has a chapter in it by me on objectivism. Uh, that because one of the issues that comes up between objectivists and libertarians is, you know, what to make of anarchism and so-called anarcho-capitalism contains uh, some of the arguments and some references to where you can find others of them.
8: Oh, oh,
3: okay. We don't end on by my book.
8: Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Since we are in Athens, uh, I wanted to stick up for altruism a little bit. Uh, to say that there are certain cases, uh, historically speaking, where uh, sacrificing yourself for something greater is uh, very important. Now, uh, I know Onkar Gate said in his first lecture that religion was greatly involved in promoting the idea of altruism. But in Greece itself, particularly in Athens, uh, think of the marathon runner, who ran all the way from marathon to here to warn the Athenians that the, Greek, that the Persian fleet was advancing towards Athens and died when he got here after delivering the warning. That was sacrifice for something greater than himself. The political community, the families in Greece, the uh, traditions and the communities there, the polis. Think of the 300 Spartans who died at Thermopylae. That was a sacrifice. And I would argue not only did they die for the freedom of Greeks, Uh, they also uh, died for something they didn't know would come to pass, which is the birth of Western civilization. Uh, So, John Stuart Mill argues that the Battle of Marathon was more important for British history than the Battle of Hastings. And I think he's got a good point there. But that could not have happened if it were not for the sacrifices of those people who fought and died against the odds. Because Greece, what was Greece? A speck of dust on the coattails of a great Persian Empire. So, isn't there a case for such altruism? Can it have good effects?
2: Not every sacrifice is an instance of altruism in a certain sense. Um, I gave up dessert today so that I could make it here on time. Um, Closest I can get to altruism. But more seriously, Um, I don't know the motives of, I I have no doubt that the Spartans who sacrificed themselves may have been, I mean I know Spartan culture, they regarded themselves as not really an individual but as a Spartan, a member of a tribe or an ethnos. Um, The fact that their sacrifice produced some good does not, um, I forget the language you used, make small, make altruism at least a little good or something like that. what it meant was that there was not a there was no code of ethics that could give a rational uh, justification for why a person would be willing to e- put himself in a position where they might die for something great that something was of value to that person um, so I don't know the motives of the marathon runner uh, I think uh, as far as an ancient text is concerned, I think it's very interesting that Aristotle discusses why a person would be willing to be the kind of person who would die. He he discusses that in the context of his broader discussion of self-love. And so for him the issue is why would a lover of self, a philauton, why would he be willing to um, be the kind of person who might be in a situation where he would have to die for something that is a great value: his family, his uh, friends, his country. And he he puts it in the terms of, well, the kind of person who would be, who is a valuer like that, who would be willing to even die for his value, is the kind of person who is going to have a richer, deeper, better life than someone who will um, is afraid is a coward would not uh, you know mount the barricade. Um, because that kind of person is going to have, I forget the exact language, uh, Greg, you can help out, that, you know, it's better to have, uh, you know, 12 hours of brilliance than a humdrum um, year or something like that, or, or, but he puts it in those terms, and I think um, uh, finding historical examples, especially in deep antiquity, where there's no real conception of, of uh, rational ethics, as a counterexample, um, when what altruism really is, the symbol of altruism is the crucifixion. It's the uh, blitter It's the stuff I was talking about today. It's um, it's all bad all the time. And the fact that you can come up with a historical example of someone dying for their country, who they don't even might n- n- not understand the motives for why they're doing it, isn't a counter Isn't the counter argument to egoism?
3: Since we're here in Athens, Robert mentioned Aristotle, who I think does write brilliantly on this, but also Socrates. Um, whether Socrates is, was right to drink the hemlock, uh, given his own premises, is a good question. I think given Aristotle's premises, he was right to not let Athens sin twice against philosophy and leave. But I think what Socrates has portrayed in the Apology. And Aristotle, in his chapter on self-love, agree on in this kind of case, is that if it's right to do it, it's not a sacrifice. It's not worse for you than the alternative. We're all going to die. One of the things Socrates says in his trial is, "You might resent me for not making the kind of defense that would have let me, you know, get off. Uh, that would have not goaded you into killing me. As though if I made that kind of defense, I wouldn't die." I'm an old man, we're all going to die. Death catches all of us, and it's a slow runner. Wickedness runs faster. You, my accusers, being younger and sprier than I am, got caught by the uh, by the faster, by uh, the faster runner. I think that's the metaphor, but the point is that he's gonna die anyway, you're gonna die, we're all gonna die. And the decisions that we make about how to live aren't just about prolonging our lives, although it's good to try to prolong your life, but they're also about what kind of life you want to have. And there are kinds of lives that are longer and worse for you. Think of the kind of life Ankar mentioned earlier about somebody in a hospital bed with you know, horrible pain and so forth lingering on. Their life would be better if it were shorter. There are fates worse than a early death. There are lots of lives that are worse, worse for the person living them, if they go on longer than if they end sooner, under certain conditions. Slavery is, especially if there's no prospect for escape, a fate worse than death. Being tortured to death and having everybody you love destroyed is a fate worse than death. And being willing to run every risk to avoid that, running literally all those miles, not knowing if you'll make it, to avoid that kind of faith is something that's selfishly worth doing. And even in some cases, laying down your life, knowing that you're going to die now, is better than going on with a life that you know will be awful going forward. So dying sooner rather than later is not always a sacrifice. A sacrifice in the relevant sense is giving up what's really valuable to you based on your best judgment, consistent with your values, giving up what really matters to you for something that doesn't matter to you that's alleged to matter for some reason apart from your judgment and your values. Giving up what personally matters to you for something whose alleged value is impersonal. Giving up what's rationally valuable for the sake of something whose value cannot be established by your reason. That's a sacrifice. That's what we're saying is wrong. I don't know enough about the psychology of the marathon runner or the men at Thermopylae to know whether they did that, but if they did, it was wrong. And if they didn't, it wasn't. If they did it because they knew it was best for them or rationally thought it was best for them, then it was noble. We don't have to know which was true about them to opine about the historical significance of
0: the outcome of course. And can I say something, I want to say something about the military context and the military context in the present day, where we do know motivations of soldiers. So, I spent a lot of time on 9-11 and its aftermath, in part because it's an extremely significant issue. It set the whole tone for the 21st century and almost all of its problems, I think. But also because it was an extremely important philosophical issue that would be at best, misconceptualized, at worst, deliberately um, and perversely conceptualized. And one of the misconceptualizations, and I think there is, for many people, it's deliberate, is on this issue of the military and soldiers. One of the things that you saw after 9-11 was many young Americans enlisting in the army. They weren't career soldiers, they are enlisting in the army and when you read about their motivations, they were highly selfish motivations. We're not going to live in a country that cowers in fear. And if you were around in 9-11 and the immediate atmosphere after it, it was like, we don't know what is going on. Can we get on a plane? Can we get on a subway? Is it going to be bombed? And so on. And many young Americans was like, we're not going to live like this. We're going to put an end to this threat once and for all. And to view that as a sacrifice for a greater good is perverse. When they were interviewed, it was, I'm not going to live like this. My friends are not going to live like this. My family's not going to live like this. I'm not bringing up kids in a world like this and in a country like this. And part of what was so perverse of what happened with 9-11 is the administration, Um, led by George W. Bush, it turned it into a sacrifice that you took these soldiers who had rational and egoistic motivation and you made them into self-sacrificers. And this, Bush did, it's about, no, this cannot be about American um, self-defense. It's not about vengeance. It's not about putting an end to the threat. We're going to bring democracy to everybody. Um, We're going to do it in Afghanistan. We're going to do it in Iraq. And it's a total travesty of what happened. And when you read about now some of the soldiers who have come back or who served a tour or two tours or three tours in Afghanistan, and the withdrawal that America had from Afghanistan, and they're wondering, like, what the hell was it for? And what did we do? And we accomplished nothing or worse than nothing. And you took their lives and they had a selfish motivation and you turn them into self-sacrificers, and they can't understand what happened to them. So the idea that a soldier has to be motivated by a cause, I'm giving up my life for a cause greater than myself, I don't value myself, my friends, my wife, my kids, is not true, and part of that narrative is makes it impossible to have an actual war of self-defense, but such a thing is possible.
8: Thanks.
2: Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes,
0: Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.